This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And we are still talking all things Tesla. Jason, we're about three weeks into the saga that began on August 7th when the tweet storm went off. And now we're sort of moving past that into the third week of where do things stand more from a legal perspective now that the shares, of course, are still off about 20% from that time. To get a little bit more perspective on this, we're joined by Holly Frome. She is our consumer and industrial litigation analyst here over at Bloomberg Intelligence. And on the phone, too, we have Charles Whitehead. He's our professor of business law over at Cornell Law School. Charles, great to have you on the phone. I wanted to start with you first, just on a very high level. What's the biggest legal risk when it comes to Tesla right now? Is it corporate board governance? Is it the SEC? Is it CFIUS? What do you see as some of their biggest legal challenges at this moment? Sure. So, so there are a number of things on the securities, the capital market side, uh, uh, not just private litigation, but an SEC investigation. And the uncertainty around that is one of the reasons why I suspect you see this depressed stock price. Uh, you also have real questions about the board of directors. And one of the questions that potentially will come up is whether or not the board was properly overseeing the management of the company, not just based upon the tweet, but more generally based upon the more recent New York Times uh, interview with, uh, with Elon Musk, where he talks about just how overextended he is. I, I think a board, particularly when you're dealing with such a charismatic founder as, as Mr. Musk, presumably is, a, is aware of the fact that he's overextended. And you hear about you know, three or four days in a, in a factory and not seeing sunlight. And you ask yourself whether or not the board was properly exercising their oversight function and permitting something like this from happening, uh, uh, to, to happen and, and not stepping in to try to help uh, write the, uh, the management structure. So I, I can't pinpoint any one area because I think there are a whole range of issues. But if you were to ask me to so to draw on one, it probably is on the security side, the SEC litigation, a potential litigation, as well as uh, the, the private lawsuits. So, Holly, come on in here. You know, one of the things you point out in, in a note uh, that you released is that – it's not a it's not a certainty that shareholders would would even approve this were it were it to go forward. Well, that's correct. I mean, they they would need a shareholder vote. I think one of the major concerns here is that if there's dissenting shareholders, they have um, an argument in court that if this special committee that um, Tesla has convened vo- votes in favor of going private, they've sort of been. Um, under sort of pressure by this tweet to approve the transaction. So so shareholders could say that it wasn't a fully informed decision. It wasn't a neutral decision. They weren't independent. Um, and, and they have a good legal challenge. I mean, an argument, at least, that um, this special committee was sort of arm-twisted to... Um, to vote in favor of the deal. 
Charles, you talked a lot about the uh, shareholder lawsuits, some of the private lawsuits that we could be seeing as well. I wonder um, from what side of it we'll see, because you could have shareholders suing over what does secured funding mean. Uh, I wonder if you start seeing shorts suing if prices go up. Right now, prices are down. Are you seeing shareholders on either end uh, talk about litigation? Sure. So, so I think on the on the security side, it really does go to this question of what do we mean by secured funding? Um, you know, word to the wise, if you're going to announce go, a going private transaction, don't do it by Twitter. Um, you tend to have a lot more of a, a focused analysis of what we mean, what we actually want to describe uh, in terms of things like secured funding. But as Holly referenced, I mean, an MBO is a complicated transaction. It's got all sorts of conflicts. And so to announce it in, you know, a, a limited disclosure without a lot of background to it is, is a real problem. So on the, on the security side, the short sellers clearly have an issue, uh, and uh, they're going to argue that this is done as a way to prop up the price using, again, material, uh, materially inaccurate information. Uh, the shareholders more generally, uh, people that may have um, – uh, uh, transacted in securities during the same period may also see. Forget short sellers; just people that decided to go ahead and and uh, uh, you know sell or buy stock, depending on which side they were, and depending upon when it happened vis-a-vis the tweet, may also have claims against uh, the company. Um, on the MBO side, I mean, Holly, Holly, I think hit it right on the head. The 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 concern here is is this independent board. It's got a lot of pressure put on it. Uh, I mean, you know, imagine the poor lawyer. Uh, both the outside lawyer and the inside lawyer, who are sitting around there and trying to figure out how to box this tweet in such a way that they can uh, uh, basically rationalize what was being said relative to what it is the board is asked to approve. Uh, given that, there is so much uncertainty around the language in the tweet. It's very difficult to do. MBOs are inherently conflicted, and by putting this type of pressure on the stock price, by making it unclear whether or not the pro- company is properly valued in light of these threats of lawsuits, in light of the regulatory threats, just makes it that much more difficult. So I, I, I would take it a step further. I, I can guarantee to you there will be lawsuits yeah. on the going private transaction. Only, uh, only a lawyer, only a lawyer can use the phrase Taylor. Imagine the poor lawyer, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Holly, I, I want to bring it back to you briefly, which is to ask you, CFIUS would seem to be a, a real challenge here, but you argue it is not. That, of course, is the foreign uh, review of any sort of foreign transaction. Why, why do you not think that's an obstacle here? Well, one of the questions is whether this is going to be deemed critical technology, and it's not totally clear that it will be. Um, but even if the CFIUS does deem it critical technology, there are ways to structure the deal to sort of appease um, CFIUS. And um, one of the things that it can do is make this investor a passive investor so that it doesn't have um, managerial control, so that it doesn't have access to certain technical information. Right. Um, so so there are ways to structure the deal. I don't know if, if this fund would agree to that, but there right. are ways to do it. All right. Well, lots more to come uh, here on Bloomberg Radio. Holly from and Charles Whitehead, thanks so much for your insights. Petty on a Monday afternoon. All right. So as we've been talking about really for the last 72 hours, this was a story that really captured Wall Street's imagination. A tweet from the president uh, saying that the SEC, maybe they should study whether we need to get 
uh, earnings every quarter. It's such a burden on companies. To give us some context on this, Zach Gass, he's the global head of research at CFRA, joining us on the phone from Maryland. Zach, great to be with you. Uh, so what does this mean? What, what if we were to move to six months versus three months? What would the consequences be? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, Appreciate the opportunity. I think what's interesting about this proposal is it would bring the U.S. market more on par with some other markets around the world. Uh, And there are positive and negative points around that. Uh, The positive side is that it probably would reduce costs for companies, um, which is not a bad thing. On the downside, though, when you give the investment community less information about where you stand, they tend to have more swings in their opinion in those longer-term periods. Uh, Interestingly, one of the things that's been talked about is that this would create less opportunities for companies to manipulate their financial statements. We actually specialize in financial statement analysis. Um, In our experience, that has not been the case. We see financial statement manipulation in all sorts of markets, not just in markets that report quarterly. Zach, it's really interesting because we have you from the sell side. And as head of research, of course, you want as much access to earnings reports and the CEO. Uh, You do make your own models, though, right, when you're analyzing companies. So I wonder, you know, what a real difference quarterly earnings really make for you if you can also just call up the IR department and get access to an executive from the company if you were to have a question, for example. So the company access is very important, and it's something that occurs not on a quarterly basis, um, but even more often than that with analysts. I think the interesting part about it is that when that's your only venue to be able to get information from a company, it doesn't affect the elite sell-side analyst much or probably the elite buy-side firm that manages a lot of assets. Who it hurts is the smaller investors who don't have that opportunity and instead have to rely on someone else sharing that information. And then how much of an impact does this have on uh, material non-public information? Because I think about uh, the days when I was grinding it out during the CFA exams, and you talk about how a phone call with the CEO and an analyst is still considered material non-public information. What uh, effect does that have sort of on the company? Um, Well, hopefully the company is still able to maintain that line where they're not going to be providing material non-public information. If they're going to do that, they should be putting out something. If it's going to move the stock, it should be put out in another format, like an 8K, even outside of an earnings report. Um, So we wouldn't see as much effect. I think the interesting issue is there's so much more that occurs today outside of the quarterly earnings. Um, You have people calling up suppliers and customers. You have geospatial firms looking at pictures of parking lots. um, So that lengthening the period of time where you have an actual calibration to the financial statements uh, probably hurts the ability of investors to figure out how all that other information ties in. Right. So, Zach, we've talked about, you know, how it might affect companies. How would this change affect Wall Street? You know, what? how would it change, uh, you know, the sell side cost structure, the even the sort of rhythms of of how analysts interact with companies? So I think the first effect on Wall Street is that you would have less opportunities to interact with management that's structured around concrete financial numbers. Yeah. 
Um, instead, you would be talking about more strategy, which is a good thing, um, except that it can be very hard to pin down how the strategy is being implemented. Um, The other part of it is that Wall Street is already in a difficult period. Commissions are down significantly year over year. They're projected to continue going that way for a few more years. Um, So for the analysts to be able to respond to that becomes more and more difficult. Um, In terms of the day-to-day work, though, I don't think it changes much. You're still doing everything you're doing. You just have one less checkpoint during the year or two less checkpoints during the year by moving to semi-annual earnings instead of quarterly. Right. Zach Gass, Global Head of Research for CFRA, joining us on the phone uh, from Maryland. Great context, Zach. We'll definitely circle back with you as this moves along. It sounds like this is a story, Taylor, that is not going away. And the SEC, Jay Clayton, came out last week after the president uh, tweeted and did say, we have been looking into this in a number of different ways and and guaranteeing or at least uh, trying to assuage some fears that this would not diminish the transparency that uh, investors get from companies. I mean, you've studied this in in your Well, it's interesting what he said is just the positives and the negatives. Overall, they are net negative, uh, would reduce the cost for companies, which is clearly why we have CEOs like Jamie Dimon talking about this. But then my key takeaway from that great interview we just had was it's the small investors that you worry about, not the analysts. They're going to get the information. It's what it means to the smaller guys. Yeah. And it does take me back to the early days of, you know, Reg FD and all those um, conversations that really did fundamentally change and and hopefully even the playing field a little bit. So in the latest issue of Bloomberg Businessweek, there's a phenomenal story that really opens up, candidly, a lot of questions that I have, uh, and I think Taylor does too, if I may speak for her, about the way data is collected and handled, especially when it comes to financial services. Jenny Serain, Bloomberg News finance reporter, uh, wrote the story, and it's about a company called Cardlytics, and we're delighted to have Scott Grimes, the CEO of that company, on the phone with us from Atlanta, Hotlanta. Uh so, Jenny, I want to start with you before we get to the man himself. How did you find out about this, and, and what was the reason to write this story in the first place? Yeah, I um, appreciate the time. I think, you know, it's a question that we have. How are banks using this massive pile of data that they sit on? And so when you really start digging into it, you find that um, a lot of times banks are actually pretty hesitant to use this data. They don't – there's a lot of reputational risk that can come with it, um, and they, they, they really – they've really tried to clamp down. Um, but there is one company – um, Cardlytics down in Atlanta um, that a few banks, especially J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, um, as recently as this year, have signed deals with um, to, to really take the purchase data that comes from your credit cards um, and, and using that in a way that um, can help them increase usage of their apps. So let's bring in Scott Grimes because it's great. He is the co-founder and CEO of Cardlytics. Scott, just walk us basically through sort of how your company works. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for having me on. So um, when... Then Novi and I um, founded the company uh, about 10 years ago. We were both bankers at Capital One, and we both understood the power of purchase data. And we always kind of say there's nothing that predicts how someone's likely to buy in the future versus how they bought in the past. But we also understood the real sensitivity around the data. So when we came up with the, the, the ideal for Carlytics, we built a very unique architecture that handles purchase data in a highly secure and confidential way. We do everything we do without using any PII, any personally identifiable information, Mm. and everything we do is at the aggregated anonymous level. So what we're doing, basically, 
is we're using analytics built on top of purchase data to help marketers find the right customers, market to them, and then measure to the penny the results. What we're doing for banks is we're providing a way for banks to help their, help their customers save money every day based on the things they buy. So we are using purchase data. It's incredibly sensitive, but we're using it in a way that's very unique and specific to banking. So, Scott, give us an example. I'm a, I'm a customer of J.P. Morgan Chase, and what, what am I going to see? What, what can your data do that, that J.P. Morgan – or help J.P. Morgan do that it wouldn't be able to do otherwise? Yeah, so let's say that you're a customer that um, buys uh, things at a high-end department store. And so we can see that you're going to one department store, but maybe you're not going to one of those department store's competitors. Okay. So what we would bring to you through any of our banks, and we have over 2,000 banks live in the U.S., you would see, in essence, an offer from your bank in any of the digital banking channels, online banking or mobile banking. And it's very simple. Go to this retailer, earn 10% off on your next purchase. That's all you have to do is look at that, read, read the offer, then simply use your payment card associated with that bank. We will see that purchase come through, and then we'll automatically give you rewards in terms of either cash back, points, miles, whatever rewards, currencies associated with your account. Scott, I want to ask how customers are reacting, uh, because when we heard um, Facebook CEO, CEO Mark Zuckerberg testify on Capitol Hill, we did hear him say that people don't like ads, but they do prefer targeted ads rather than ads that are irrelevant or random. So are customers happy with this, or are there some real big issues about privacy? Yeah, no, great question. But we think customers love it, and there's sort of two hard numbers that I always focus on. First of all, we make it very, very easy for any customer that does not want the service to opt out. Right front and center in every bank, there's a saying that says, stop receiving offers. System-wide opt-out rate is way less than 1%. The second thing I look at is how often people engage with offers. So for every offer we, we present, we have an average click rate for people activating the offer, offer to take advantage of it of over 9%. So that's several orders of magnitude higher than you see across other types of digital media. So I go, hmm, people, people aren't often opting out. They are engaging with the offers in a way much higher than other types of digital media, and they're saving hundreds of millions of dollars. Scott, I think it would be great. Um, I know banks are constantly receiving um, a lot of requests from hedge funds and other alternative data providers to get access to this bank data. Why um, Why do banks choose you guys? Like, What is it that um, banks see and like about this platform that they feel comfortable partnering with you? Yep. And by the way, we get those requests from, from all kinds of other companies all the time. Uh, we never, ever uh, share the data with anybody. We never, ever sell the data with anybody. And I think most specifically, we build a platform to go and help banks unlock the value of this data for the benefit of their customers in just a very, very unique way. It's made for banking, and you know, we built it from the ground up that way. I'm reading through your company um, uh, statements here, and, and it does say that you are in your pitch. You are a forward-looking company with a robust pipeline of new innovations in the works. What can we expect from you in the future? Yep. So, you know, one of the really exciting things that we have been working on lately is uh, traditionally we brought payment data in once per night in the batch mode. We are now beginning to bring payment data in in real time from each of our banks. And so this allows us to bring customers other ways to save money, other ways to capture value in real time based exactly where they are, just increasing the relevance for customers, increasing the opportunity to help customers during the different parts of their day. 
Scott Grimes, co-founder and CEO of Cardlytics, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. Thank you so much. So, Jenny, I, I want to stick with you for, for one more second, just because you look at financial institutions of all stripes. How worried are the banks about this sort of privacy issue at this moment? I think they're really worried. I mean, I think it's interesting when you talk to a lot of um, experts and analysts in the space, a lot of them say that banks waste a vast majority of the data that they sit on. And I think it's because they're worried about the reputational risk of letting that data get out. Um, But there's also a business case for it. You know, they don't want this data getting in the hands of Facebook or Amazon because who knows what those guys could do with it in terms of building out their own financial services offering. So it's certainly um, top of mind for them to kind of keep a, a real strong handle on this. Well, and it's just interesting in general the timing, given there's been so much yeah. controversy over privacy, but but I really like that interview. Yeah. Great, great story, Jenny Serain, Finance Report, Bloomberg News. You can find the story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Jason Kelly, Jason Kelly, can I say my own? Jason Kelly. I'm Taylor Riggs. And I'll Taylor say my Riggs. Own name. You said your own name very, very well. <laughs> Bloomberg News on Bloomberg Radio. As we mentioned earlier, we are still awaiting comments from the president of the United States at the White House, expected, I believe, to discuss immigration policy. We will monitor those headlines once he starts speaking. If you would like to watch it once it gets started, you can zip over to live, go on your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, For now, let's turn to our friend and colleague, Peter Coy. He, of course, is our economics guru at Bloomberg Business Week, a frequent guest on our television and radio show on the weekends, Taylor Riggs, uh, Bloomberg Business Week. So, Peter, you were responsible for the international cover story, I believe, this week about Turkey and about President Erdogan. And the headline really says it all. It's Turkey's stress test, Erdogan's stress test in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. So what was the thing? What's your thesis here? Uh, Erdogan has become... He's gone from being a Democrat, kind of a hope for the Middle East, to really being an autocrat. And it's not working for him because global financial markets don't deal well with somebody who's trying to suppress market forces. Um, he has a cockamamie theory that raising interest rates causes inflation, and he may be able to get the people in his legislature to go along with that because he's the boss. But you know, global financial markets just shrug it off, and, and they get actually get worried, and that's what you're seeing happening. Um, when the lira fell 18 percent in one day, it was a sign not only that Trump was on a tear against him, but that the f- global financial markets were really uh, having giving him a comeuppance. Well, when you talk about markets getting worried, um, but it's interesting to note in your story, and rightfully so, you say uh, contagion isn't what most economists are predicting, given that Turkey accounts for only about 1% of the global economy. And it's interesting here, another stat, the market value of all Turkish companies traded on the Istanbul Stock Exchange is less than that of McDonald's. So contagion, not so much of a worry, and yet we did see Domestic little... contagion. Yes. Right? Well, the contagion can take many different forms. So it, the example you gave of the equity market, it's, uh, it's not like uh, the world's investors are going to lose so much on their turkey holdings that they're going to panic and, you know, there'll be a, a worldwide rout. 
Um, and it's also not likely that trade would become a problem. For example, if the Turkish economy sank fewer exports into Turkey by other countries, that's not a problem either. The problem would be more like people look at Turkey and they say, wow, Turkey can go down. Maybe Argentina can go down. Maybe South Africa. They start to look around the world for other vulnerable countries. And there are some other vulnerable countries. Venezuela. Venezuela is like more than vulnerable. It's a basket case at this stage. And so that would be it. It would be more like a, a wake-up call, as one of the people I talked to told me. Well, and and Peter, as you alluded to at the top, I mean, one of the issues here is that uh, to say that Erdogan is ignoring conventional wisdom is uh, maybe an understatement. And in fact, he is in many ways taking 180 degrees different uh, direction as it relates to how people think about the different levers of an economy. What are the implications of that for the United States and and maybe for the rest of Europe? Well, uh, I don't think there are very many countries that are quite as uh, butting heads or defying the conventional wisdom as Turkey is. Um, you could point to the the U.S. You know, running a big federal budget deficit at a time of strong economic growth, not a wise policy. Um, you can look at Donald Trump, you know, saying that he wants to he, he's worried about Jay Powell raising interest rates too much. You, you know, there are things that are not ideal, say, even in the U.S., but it, you're not it's nothing on a turkey scale. And that's one of the points of the story. That's why there's not a huge amount of contagion expected from Turkey, just because it is kind of way out on one end of the bell curve. Talk to us about some of the lessons that we're learning from all of this. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but when we're in the middle of this, sometimes it's interesting to note sort of what is happening. One of the lessons that you talk about is that if you're in a small country, you have to be very careful about right. how much and from whom you're borrowing. Yeah, and that's a good point, too, because, like, okay, the U.S., um, you know, Germany, China, big countries like that can make some pretty big mistakes for pretty long time and 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 not suffer dramatic consequences. There are other countries that are fragile. Um, and so even a small mistake can send them down. For example, Argentina under Macri has been pursuing some pretty sensible economic policies lately. But people have seen Argentina default so many times in the past that if they see any problems, they immediately jump to the conclusion, oh, oh there goes Argentina, they're going to default again. And I think that's kind of the worry with a country like Turkey as well. And let's take a step back if we can briefly, Peter, and remind people why Turkey matters so much economically. You know, politically, I think there is a fairly good sense just geographically where it sits. Um, but but economically, what's at stake and, and why are people paying such close, close attention, especially given the context that you and Taylor have been discussing about equity markets not that big. It's not like people are super exposed to the yeah. lira, but there yeah. is something that makes it important enough that you guys decide to put on the cover of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Well, you know, I think it, it it actually is a lot of the geopolitical concern. That's why a deep recession in Turkey would be of a concern. You know, it's a NATO member. It's uh, heavily mixed up in what's happening now in Syria. And it seems to be moving out of the orbit of the United States, getting closer and closer to Russia and Iran. So those are actually some of the reasons that Turkey 
is sort of punching above its weight mm -hmm. when it comes to getting worldwide attention. Well, and one of the other lessons that we talk about in the story is that at the end of the day, U.S. behavior still very much oh, matters. Yeah. And you have two leaders who felt like relations were improving, but now they're they're butting heads, maybe yeah. because their styles are in many ways so so similar. It's it's true. I mean, we had uh, Trump giving a fist bump to Erdogan just recently and admiring him for the way that he can impose his will upon his nation and not have to turn to parliaments for approval. And that seemed to Trump like a very positive thing. But uh, Trump does seem to, or has in the past, seemed to admire Erdogan much the way he seemed to admire Xi Jinping of China, uh, except that the very qualities that he admires in them are also the ones that cause them to go their own way and then come into conflict with the United States. Peter Coy, always love talking to you. You, of course, are the Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor responsible for the international cover story this week about the Turkish economy and its potential contagion across global markets. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is day six of me hearing that song package, and I love it. It gets me so pumped up. We're about 10 minutes away from the closing bell. And joining us to break all of this down is David Dietz. He's our founder and chief investment strategist over at Point View Wealth Management, joining us over from Summit, New Jersey. David, great to have you here. Uh, want to talk about some of the individual stocks that you like. But first, I wanted just to start from a broad macro level. What's your positioning here in terms of asset classes you like? We talk a lot about coming off of a great earnings season. We're looking at a potential rate hike from the Federal Reserve next month. What assets do you like right now? Well, certainly, uh, we continue to favor equities. I mean, you know, the mother's milk for stock prices are earnings, and we're just coming off the Q2 reporting season, earnings up on average 25% year over year. That's your number one bullish factor. I think your second most important factor out there for asset allocation is interest rates. You know, with that 10-year still below 3%, that, that's a low interest rate environment, which makes stocks relatively more attractive. And although we certainly, it would be far from uh, anything we would do to tell clients to forsake having bonds as a type of insurance in their portfolio, the fact of the matter is when you're starting from that low in terms of an interest rate, you're not going to get rich there. As a result, I still think there's going to be a continuing bid under this market on any kind of pullback as people continue to look for a way to grow their assets for retirement or, you know, distribution from endowments and so forth. So, David, one of the stocks you like is Exxon. Tell us how energy plays into your thesis right now. Sure. Um, energy, we think, is an important part of everyone's portfolio. First of all, you know, we are knocking the door of all-time highs uh, in the major market averages. And here we've got energy is an asset class or an industry that's well off of its highs. Remember just a few years ago, uh, fossil fuel prices were over $100 a barrel. 
right now they're between 60 and 70, so you're not buying something at a nosebleed level. Certainly, with this economic strength here, it does raise the specter of inflation. Energy historically has been a great hedge on inflation. And, of course, uh, with the stronger economy, it's going to come greater demand for economic activity. That typically translates into more demand for energy. Um, at the same time, we've come off a period, remember, recently February 2016, oil prices were down in the 20s. That put a halt to further capital expenditures. So we think supply is is kind of weak here, relatively speaking. Demand is growing. That, th- that means we think that energy stocks and commodities look pretty good generally here. How do you feel about the uh, consumer staples as well? Because that's something that um, you say provides good income. Uh, I wonder, though, as we look on it, on a year-to-date basis, we're off a little bit on consumer staples. Today, they're mostly unchanged to positive a little bit. One of those stocks in there, of course, that you like is Procter & Gamble. Uh, Is it just a good income, solid dividend play here? Well, again, we want to stay very diversified, and and certainly the party has been around some of the tech and fang stocks. That's great, but no one would doubt that those valuations are very full, if not in excess. So the fact that a a sector which historically has been one of the best performers over the last 50 years, consumer staples, has underperformed, uh, caused us to roll up our sleeves and start doing some research there. And what we like about it, of course, is you've got great dividends. You've got strong brands, which gives you some protection against other types of uh, competition. You've got global reach. In many cases, they're spread out to the emerging markets and so forth. Now, in the case of Procter & Gamble, we've got about 20 brands. They've winnowed down their brands dramatically, but they've still got about 20 brands. They have well over $1 billion each annually in sales. It's being led by beauty. And, of course, you've got that 3.5% dividend. So I think you've got a little bit of a defensive characteristic in case we get some volatility volatility coming into August, coming into September, after perhaps we hit all-time highs here. And David, about 30 seconds left here. You also like pharma, it seems like, some some pricing pressure, I guess, on those stocks of late, right? Yeah, you know, healthcare sector has great long-term tailwinds. Uh, we're all getting older. Um, uh, overseas, they want the type of healthcare that Americans have, and so I think there's a strong push there. But it's been out of favor because of concerns about higher drug prices and potential. Uh, price controls, and so forth. So I think some of these long-term winners, the Pfizer's, uh, the Merck's of the world, I particularly like Sanofi because it's European-based, have been under pressure, but they offer good dividends. They have uh, drugs that have strong patent protection. They have strong research and development pipelines, which I think is going to bode well going forward here. David Dietz, founder and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, our man over in Summit, New Jersey, joining us on the phone from there. Thanks so much. So, Taylor, some interesting commentary there. I like the specific names he's uh, he's pointing out. Yep, the dividend yield. I want to have him back to discuss the uh, trade-off that we get now in treasury yields and dividend yields. If you're getting a 3.5% dividend yield and a 282 on the 10-year, you wonder how... Uh, those two ratios can sort of push people into one asset class or the other. Well, and when he said at the top, uh, you know, he's into equities. Yeah. You you sort of did the Taylor the most eye roll there. Trade, yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Bloomberg Radio, Jason Kelly and Taylor Riggs here with you on a Monday afternoon. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.